I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of capital allocators or their firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of capital allocators or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities discussed on this podcast. My guest on today's Sponsored Insight is Brian Christensen, Executive Managing Director and Senior Portfolio Manager at Sands Capital a growth-focused public and private equity manager that oversees $50 billion in assets. Our conversation covers Brian's journey to Sands Capital, the firm's investment philosophy and approach to growth investing, six key investment criteria, portfolio construction, competitive advantage, and investment examples. Before we get going, my daughter Skylar is taking over the mic for this week's Spread the Word. I've just started my second semester of my senior year of high school. You might think that that's a time to kick back and relax, and it is. So while I slack off, have some fun, and don't tell my dad about it, I'd suggest you keep listening and do tell a friend or two about the show. Thanks so much for spreading the word about Capital Allocators. Please enjoy my conversation with Brian Christensen. Brian, great to see you. It's very good to see you as well, Ted. Thank you for having us. Why don't you take me back? to your upbringing and your path to getting in this business? I graduated from Yale in the mid-2000s, and I had received a fellowship as a Yale Silver Scholar. And that program's a little bit unique in the sense that they choose five undergrads to go straight to business school. And it was really there that I learned a lot more about how the investment management industry worked. My dad was a naval officer. So he was in the Navy for 27 years. He actually ran a Navy hospital. So he was in hospital administration. My mom was also in hospital administration. So she actually ran civilian hospitals. I didn't really have much institutional knowledge about how the investment management industry worked, but I did have a very strong interest in not only healthcare, given the family background, but also technology and business. When I was in high school, I owned my own web design company. So I had this extra cash lying around. So that's when I bought my first mutual fund. There was definitely an interest in investing, but I got sort of cultivated in that business school environment because that's the first time I met other people who had worked in the industry. That's when I really dug in to try to learn everything I could. Right around that time, David Swenson was a rock star on campus. Even if you didn't know much about investing, everybody knew who he was because of the impact he had had on student life with how successful the endowment had been. And essentially, one of the things that he talked about in his books was some of the correlations of the strong investment management firms that they had had and some of the qualities that they had looked for in the manager selection process. So I literally just was like, I'm going to pretend like I'm an institutional buyer of an investment management firm and just kind of use that same list that Swenson talked about in his books. And I just went to the career service office and started just 
organizing a list of potential target firms to go work for. And Sands Capital was one of the companies. And it piqued my interest because I was originally from Northern Virginia. Sands is located in Arlington, Virginia, right outside of Washington, D.C. And I was pretty lucky because Sands was hiring. And so I've spent my entire career at the firm since then. So when you were at School of Management at Yale and you were reading Swenson's stuff, what were those principles that you started looking at that led you to Sands? Yeah, so some of the things that he talked about in the books were things like the firm having low turnover as part of its investment strategy, being large enough to obviously pay the bills, but not so large that they're asset gatherers, employee ownership rather than being owned by an outside institution located outside of New York. I thought that was a really interesting one. Obviously, having a very clear investment philosophy process as well as track record was an obvious one. But some of those other characteristics that I picked up on in the reading, I thought was very interesting as well. So what was Sands when you got there? Yeah, so there's a lot of things that are similar. We still have our same mission. We still have our same investment philosophy and our same six criteria. We actually celebrated our 30th year anniversary last year. The firm was founded in 1992. But when I joined in 2006, we were definitely much smaller. We had about 50 people. We have close to 200 today. We had a single investment strategy at the time, which was our U.S. select growth strategy. Around 2006, even though we had one strategy, we had already started really thinking about globalizing our research process. In the early 90s, when SAN was started, if you looked at the revenue generation of the portfolio businesses in that select growth portfolio, maybe 25% of revenues on average were outside the US. But as you fast forward to 2006, almost half of the revenues of the companies in our US portfolio were being generated outside the US. So we already knew that we wanted to globalize our research platform. So we are just at this transition point where we were going from a single strategy at the firm to actually launching our global strategy, which we launched in late 2008, early 2009. Over time, we launched our emerging markets strategy back in 2013. We also built out our private market capabilities. So today we have about 50 billion in assets under management in public equity strategies. And then we have a couple billion in our private capabilities as well. One additional observation on how the firm has evolved since I joined is we've built a pretty remarkably global client base over the years as well. In fact, over the last 10 years or so, the percent of assets from clients outside the US has roughly doubled to over 40%. And now we have clients from over 40 countries around the world. There's been a lot of interest from overseas clients to access the type of concentrated, conviction-weighted, growth-oriented investing that we do in these leading growth businesses around the world. And we've actually opened up business development offices in London and Singapore over the last few years to help support that global client base in the local time zones. In addition to the global nature of our client base, we've also cultivated very long-term relationships with our clients. So well over two-thirds of our clients have now been with us for a decade or longer. Nearly 80% have been with us 
for at least five years. And these clients skew very much institutional in nature. So let's walk through those basics. You mentioned the same mission, the same investment philosophy, growth strategy. How do you define the mission of the organization? Our mission at SANS is we exist to add value and enhance the wealth of our clients with prudence over time. And those are literally the same words that we've had since the firm's founding. And we think they're as meaningful today as they were when they were first written. So from the perspective of adding value and enhancing wealth, what we're really trying to achieve is delivering attractive, absolute, and relative results versus the relevant benchmarks on a rolling five-plus-year basis. Because a core tenet of our investment philosophy is having that long-term approach. So we want to exclusively focus on high-quality, leading, innovative growth businesses around the world. And we want to own those businesses for long periods of time. And then we're very client-centered. That's why clients are very squarely in our mission statement. And we're in the risk-taking business, but we want them to be prudent risks rooted in our investment criteria. At the outset, you said you were reading Swenson and there are these characteristics of investment firm and one of his well-known characteristics <laughs> was also a value bias. So I'm curious how you came to that philosophy of growth investing. In the early days, I didn't really know at a deep level the big differences between value and growth. And if anything, the longer I've been in the industry, I think many of those differences are a little bit overplayed. But what I did find interesting is it just seems strange that in private markets, folks would want to identify a great business, invest in it, hold it for a very long period of time as that business may have doubled or tripled its earnings over some reasonably long time frame. They cared about the valuation that they paid up front. They cared about the valuation that they get paid upon exit. And that was the path to wealth creation. But then there was this different hat that everyone seemed to put on when they switched to public equities where everyone's just started talking about value and not the compounding of earnings. And that concept seemed a little bit odd to me. At SANS, what we're really trying to do is we're trying to predict the future. We're researching companies that in healthcare are changing the standard of care, are completely inventing new paradigms from a technology perspective that really have the ability to be two, three, four times larger over the next three, five, seven, ten years. And innovation is so much at the center of these businesses. And then one of the things that did sort of align with some of the principles that David Swenson had talked about was that idea of being unconventional, right? If you do everything the same as everyone else, it's pretty hard to have a differentiated outcome. And the concepts of concentration, so their US strategy has 25 to 30 businesses in it. Our multi-geography strategies like global and emerging, the sweet spot is closer to 35 to 40. So we're definitely concentrated, we're conviction-weighted, we're long-term oriented. And in many ways, those were definitely unconventional concepts to put all together back then. While there's more people that do that today than 15, 20 years ago, 
it's still definitely a minority in the marketplace. So I think that idea of doing something different, the concept of opportunity being created by change and innovation, and then just being excited about the companies I was researching. Those were things that sort of really drew me to growth investing. What do you have to believe about growth investing and that strategy as part of your philosophy that underpins the business characteristics that will lead to the success that you're trying to generate? Well, one of the things that you fundamentally have to believe in is the long-term relationship between the earnings power of a business and stock prices when you zoom out the time horizon long enough. And I've seen enough of the data looking back at call it the S&P 500 over the last 60, 70 years, as well as the anecdotal data of looking at our own data at Sands over the past 30 years, and just being a practitioner in the industry to have a firm belief in that relationship that when you zoom out the time horizon long enough and really five to seven years is the minimum you need when the horse really starts pulling the cart. And so that's a fundamental sort of relationship that you have to believe in. Now, that doesn't mean you can completely ignore valuation. And valuation is one of our six criteria, but it just means that you believe that the predominant driver of a stock price over the long term is the core earnings power of the business and the ability for it to compound. How about beliefs about the stock market alongside of the growth of these businesses? I believe strongly you need a variant perspective over the long term to have differentiated value creation. And I think one of the things that's really interested in the time that I've been in this industry over the last, call it 17 years or so, is that if anything, the average time horizon for investors has shrunk rather than elongated. And I think that creates a time arbitrage opportunity, which essentially creates an inefficiency in the market. Another way I'd sort of describe this is we'd actually say and agree with the concept that most businesses are not special. <laughs> they may be able to grow at an above average rate for a year or two, but the power of mean reversion is very, very strong. However, what we believe is that there's a very small group of special businesses that can defy the laws of mean reversion and grow for much longer and for much faster than the market anticipates or priced in. And we want to exclusively focus on those types of businesses. How do you define the characteristics of those types of businesses? So we have six criteria at SANS. The first is sustainable above average earnings growth. What that means is a business being able to deliver at the low end, at least double digit core type of earnings kager when you're looking out over our investment time horizon, which we define as five years or longer. We're looking for leadership in a promising business space. One of the reasons why we focus on either companies that are the clear market leaders or they're on the path to becoming number one over time is because in many of the markets that we invest in, a disproportionate amount of the economics tend to accrue to the market leader. And therefore, you want to own those businesses. Now, significant competitive advantage is our third criteria. That's where we spend a tremendous amount of time because that is what really underpins the sustainability of the earnings growth over time. The business that's 
growing at an above average rate without competitive advantage. That's really just momentum. So the fourth criteria is clear mission and value-added focus. That's really, in many ways, our governance and capital allocation criteria. We only want to invest behind management teams that not only have a demonstrable track record of creating wealth for shareholders and making effective capital allocation decisions, but we also want management teams that have protected the rights of minority shareholders throughout that life cycle. The fifth criteria is financial strength. And what that means to us is a business that has the cash flow and the balance sheet in order to control their own destiny. We just went through a time where cash was a commodity (laughs) for many companies, given the cost of capital is artificially low. But now when cash has a price again, this is a time when financial strength as an investment criteria really shines and shows its relevance is because if you're a business that's able to continue to invest when your competitors can't, that actually allows you to expand your moat during a down economic cycle and accelerate coming out of it, which we're seeing with many of the businesses that we're invested behind. Our last criteria is rational valuation relative to the market and business prospects. And the way to think about this is one of the reasons why our valuation criteria is last is we actually tell our analysts to go out and find the best businesses, the strongest fits with our first five criteria. And we actually celebrate that as a win. We can build the financial model, write the investment case, vet the business, and put that business on our buy list. And then we can actually wait for that valuation opportunity to present itself. And one of the reasons why we often focus on valuation last is we just want to get to know all the best businesses, regardless of valuation. To be a concentrated, conviction-weighted, long-term investor in innovative growth businesses, you really need to build conviction to own these businesses for the long term. And that conviction building process can often take you a couple months of research. So if you start with the valuation opportunity, by the time you finish your work, there's a chance that that valuation opportunity may have closed before you had finished your due diligence. But if you reverse that process and just find the businesses that are the strongest fits with your first five criteria, then you can be on the offensive rather than the defensive and take advantage of it. The other thing is, is it's really hard to figure out what the appropriate valuation is for a business unless you've linked it to what its long-term growth prospects are. One of the things that I often will get questions from folks is how can you embrace a company that trades at 90 times next 12 month PE earnings? And my response is often, tell me the growth rate and I'll tell you if that's attractive or not. Because if it's a 90 times PE company that's growing earnings only 10%, it's really hard to make the math work long-term. But if it's a company that can compound earnings at 45% over the next five years, that can actually be very, very attractive in an expected return framework, even if you bake in meaningful multiple compression over the next five years. As you go through and find a business that gets onto your buy list and you're waiting for valuation, often businesses with those types of characteristics are understood by the market and valued highly. How do you think about that piece of variant perception? It happens sometimes, but very rarely will you see 
a meaningful deviation between our internal estimates that we have on a business versus market consensus for that same business on a call it 12 or 18 month basis. Where we typically see the biggest deviations between what we're modeling for a business and sort of what's priced in the stock for looking at sell side models, for example, is in years three, four, and five and beyond. And one of the reasons for that is one, a lot of folks aren't modeling beyond a year or two, and they're spending a disproportionate amount of time on trying to understand the 12 to 18 month period rather than the next five years. Two is even when folks do model it, the amount of time that they're spending thinking about those assumptions in the out years is just very different. So they, in years three, four, and five, they'll often just automatically fade the growth. That makes sense for the majority of businesses. But what we're trying to do is find that special group that we think is unlikely to revert to the mean during our time frame, And we're spending a disproportionate amount of time when we're talking with management, doing our own proprietary research, discussing the business internally, building conviction in that years three, four, five, and beyond. And when you're able to do that, typically you have a variant perspective versus that of the market. We also think a lot about you know, what we'd call second and third acts. Many of these businesses are able to take a success in one particular area and then leverage it into other areas. And when a business has a very strong value proposition and competitive advantage with its customer, when it has a fantastic innovative management team, when it has financial strength, when it has those first five criteria that I was talking about, the chances that they're going to be able to leverage that into adjacencies to create additional value in ways that will often surprise you and other investors is much, much higher. And if I bring that to life, when we first invested in Mercado Libre well over a decade ago, there was no fintech business. That was the adjacency that they were able to leverage that relationship that they had with both buyers and sellers. And now the fintech business and the digital wallet is almost half the sum of the parts for the entire business. When we first invested in Amazon decades ago, there was no AWS. We have some businesses that I call are in the decade plus club at Sands. And what I mean by that is those are businesses that we owned for at least 10 years or longer throughout the history. And there's been over 25 businesses that we've invested in that we've owned for over a decade at the firm. And you can kind of go almost business by business in that decade plus club. Typically, they're able to surprise either through geographic expansion, additional products and services, or second and third act adjacencies that allowed them to sustain that growth for much longer than what people anticipate. There's this great Warren Buffett line that you want to own a business that's so good that any idiot could run it because eventually someone will. What you're describing is a combination of a strong business and then a great management team that can move into these adjacencies. As you're evaluating one business relative to another one that looks really good, I'm curious how you think about the importance of the business model relative to the management team. Honestly, we think it's not either or. As you mentioned, we think you have to be able to put the two together because where we find some of our biggest opportunities from a business model 
perspective is typically at the intersection of change and innovation or a company sitting at a choke point in that change. And from that perspective, you want the company to be operating in a business space where wealth creation is conducive, where companies can set their own prices rather than being price takers, where a positive return on invested capital through the full cycle is sort of achievable with the competitive dynamic. So business model absolutely matters. But because many of the markets that we're invested in, there's a significant innovation component as well, then management execution is absolutely key because to create those adjacencies or to fend off competition in highly competitive markets, you want a business which is able to recruit superior talent. And talented people come to work for other talented people and to be surrounded by other talented people. So building conviction in a management team's vision, their ability to innovate, their ability to execute, and importantly, their ability to recruit and retain some of the best talent in the industry. Those are some of the hallmarks that we're looking for in a high-quality growth business. When you run portfolios that are that concentrated, I'd love to hear about the research process that goes into the decision to add something to your portfolio. One of our best ways of mitigating risk is the very disciplined application of our criteria over many years using largely the same investment team. When you do that consistently, it makes sure that you're really focused on great businesses and not just good businesses. And so that's step one. But then once a business, you've decided that it meets our six criteria, one of the things that we're doing is we want to put it into a portfolio context that makes sense. We don't want just the fastest growing businesses in the world and call that a portfolio. We want businesses that are diversified in terms of their end markets, the geographies that they're operating in or their customer bases. And we want balance across the high growth, high valuation businesses, which are earlier in that S curve and sometimes have that wider cone of outcomes with more of our classic growth businesses where they're still very much growth businesses, but they're a little bit further up that S curve. The cone of outcomes isn't quite as wide. So we also have an eye on portfolio construction when we're assembling the portfolio together. And we try not to quibble about small changes in weights. What we're really trying to do in the conviction-weighted process is we have our large, our medium, and our small bucket weights. And we want to make sure that the right business is in the right weight bucket. And one of the ways we're defining that is even though a business has to meet every single one of our six criteria just to be in the portfolio, you can still stack rank those businesses relative to one another using that criteria. So take something like leadership in a promising business space. By leader, you could be the number one market share, be completely dominant with 50% market share, or you could be a leader in a fragmented market with only 10 to 15% share. So you can stack rank relative to dominance. All of our management teams have to be excellent, but you can still stack rank them relative to one another in terms of the amount of talent that they've built around them. So is it just the CEO and CFO, or is it the entire executive suite that is just first-class caliber talent? Do they have an even longer track record of innovating and surprising in terms of 
new markets and geographies. Ultimately, you want to allocate a disproportionate amount of capital to your strongest fits with the criteria. And when you make mistakes, ideally, you want them to be relegated to smaller bucket weights in the portfolio. How do you think about dynamically adjusting position sizes? So across all of our strategies at SANS, we have about 20% turnover, but that actually includes trims and ads. So if you look at business level turnover, it tends to be closer to 10 to 15%. The center of what we're doing is owning the right businesses. But when there's outliers in either direction, meaning the valuation got too extended or we're seeing a big valuation opportunity, we do view it as an additional way of either protecting capital or enhancing the wealth creation by adding to high conviction businesses. How do you think about managing risk? We manage risk in a couple different ways. One is through that disciplined application of our criteria using largely the same investment team throughout the years. The first type of risk that we're really trying to manage for is the impairment of the business relative to what we are modeling for that business over the next five years. So we call business impairment risk <laughs> and we call volatility volatility. We don't call volatility risk. And then the other ways that we manage risk are through that portfolio construction process. So you want your strongest fits, highest conviction businesses to be your largest weights in the portfolio. Ideally, what you'd like to see is when you're doing a look back over rolling previous five, 10 plus year basis is that your largest weights were disproportionate contributors to value creation for the portfolio. And then that you had fewer mistakes in your largest weights. And that's historically been true across our flagship strategies. In our multi-geography strategies like global and emerging markets, we are also paying attention to macro-related risk for those businesses. However, one of the things that we're trying to do, though, is identify businesses that can create their own weather in the first place, meaning businesses that aren't as dependent on overall macro to drive above average growth. But being thoughtful about macro in your portfolio construction is important as well. What are some of the things you're doing in your investment process better and differently today than 15, 20 years ago? One of the things is the globalization of our research platform. One of the reasons why we ended up launching global and emerging markets was also to enhance our research capabilities, even just for that US strategy. So if you looked at a Nike or a Starbucks, which were businesses that we owned in that 2006 portfolio, for example, two of the biggest incremental areas for growth included Asia with China and then LATAM with Brazil. So having the capability to go do that work on the ground for all of our businesses, including our US businesses, is one of the ways that we've really sort of evolved our research process over time. A second thing related to that concept is it's one of the reasons why we originally got into our private equity strategies. So we did our first investment in a private business back in 2010. And it was in the DNA sequencing space. And one of the reasons for it was because 
we felt like we had owned Illumina in the public markets at the time. And most of the innovation was actually happening in the private markets from a competitive advantage standpoint. And so to really sort of understand emerging technologies, we felt like it would give us an advantage if we were active in the private markets. And so we actually made our first investment in a business called Complete Genomics off our partner balance sheet back then at the time. So the window in the private markets, which are the next generation of either public equities that you'd like to own or could be competitive threats to the public equities that you already own, that capability has helped widen our aperture and helped increase our understanding of innovation wherever it's happening, public and private. Our macro frameworks are something that we really innovated and incorporated into our research process before we launched our first multi-geography portfolio with our global growth strategy back in 2008, early 2009. So we're definitely a learning organization. And over time, we're always trying to look for ways to enhance our ability to deliver on our mission and be smarter about the application of our criteria across our opportunity sets. How do you describe your competitive advantage? I really think there's four things. One is our investment philosophy and process. We apply that private equity-like approach to investing in public equity markets. We think there's that very small group of businesses that can grow for much longer or faster than the market anticipates. And it's those types of high-quality growth businesses for which we want to exclusively focus on. Because not that many of them exist, that's why we want to build concentrated, conviction-weighted portfolios where we own the business for the long term. So our average time horizon for owning a business is well over five years across the firm. The way that kind of works in practice is when we make mistakes, it's often a shorter time horizon of call it two to three years. And our big winners end up being some of our longest tenured investments where we own businesses for seven, eight, 10, even 15 plus years to really capture the earnings compounding of that business over many years. So after our investment philosophy and process, I think team structure is also what we believe one of our areas of differentiation is. Our team looks a lot more like a private equity team structure rather than a traditional public equity team structure. So our team's organized by sectors where the team goes very deep in understanding business model expertise. But then we're also able to do very deep due diligence in those businesses to localize that knowledge. We do that through extensive travel on the ground, obviously meeting with the management teams, meeting with competitors and suppliers, doing consumer survey work or consumer panels to really combine that global business model expertise with that local sort of on the ground knowledge, which is required for investing in businesses in global and emerging markets. And we're able to deploy a tremendous amount of resources in doing that type of work because we have such a strong ratio of investment professionals to businesses own. So we have over 60 investment professionals and we own about 130 public equity businesses across our flagship strategies. 
And that's an incredible ratio of investment professionals to businesses own. And again, those businesses don't turn over very often given that low turnover approach. So that too helps us deploy the time and the research activities and resources required to build that high conviction view to own a business for a very long period of time. And then after investment philosophy and team structure, I think the governance of the firm uh, is a little bit different at Sands. And what I mean by that is we are a 100% independently owned organization. We're owned by the employees who show up and work at Sands every day. And we have a very broad partnership in terms of employee ownership. So it's not just concentrated in only a handful of very senior investment professionals, but actually north of 40% of our 200 employees are actually partners in the firm. And I think that's enabled a few things in my view. One is it's allowed us to chart our own course and not be encumbered by sort of a parent company's interest. That broad ownership structure also breeds entrepreneurship and an ownership mentality. I think that's one of the reasons why we've been able to evolve and be very entrepreneurial throughout the 17 plus years I've been at the firm. It's also allowed the firm to make some of the biggest investments in itself during challenging periods for the industry. So during the financial crisis, for example, or more recently during the pandemic, those were times where we took the selective opportunity to actually go out and hire high-quality talent and invest in various different divisions within the firm. So when you wrap all that up and then couple it with that long-tenured client base, where there's that strong alignment with our investment philosophy and process and time horizon, I think all of those things contribute to what we think are edges versus other investment firms or investment organizations. So we've seen a big change in the growth end of the private markets starting about two years ago. We'd love to get your perspective on the opportunity set and how you're thinking about it these days. Yeah, so we do have a separate team that works on our private equity strategies, both global innovation, which is primarily technology-focused businesses, and then we have our life sciences strategy But you're absolutely right. There was a lot of capital that went into that space, particularly into late stage technology, private businesses. But I think one of the things that our team had done incredibly well is stay very, very disciplined. And actually, they put the brake on deploying capital when valuations had gotten too elevated and went well over 12 months without deploying additional capital during that time frame and have been very, very patient. And I think having an approach, again, of concentration, selectivity, and then being disciplined from a valuation perspective, I think is going to serve the strategy well and the clients well when we're looking out over the next three to five years. And then we do a look back on results the last couple of years. As we've had this wave of capital moving to passive strategies in the public markets, and more and more competition from hedge funds and active managers. I'm curious how you've seen that competition impact either the pricing of the securities or the research process you go through. It's interesting. I remember looking at this data a little while back. When I joined SANS back in 2006, I still remember it was something like 40% of 
trading volumes in the U.S. at that time were still being driven by fundamental investors. If you fast forward to today, it's maybe 10% of the market that's still doing that. The other thing is, is there's a lot of algorithmic trading all being driven by similar factors. Factor exposures can really swing short-term stock prices around quite meaningful. So one of the ways that we've thought about it philosophically is that if anything, that time arbitrage opportunity, the fact that there's even fewer people that are doing the type of work that we do with the time horizon that we do it, creates more opportunity or alpha generation. But it also makes the path potentially a lot bumpier. And it's one of the reasons we think that we've been seeing so much more volatility in the market as well. It's not uncommon now to see 40, 50% downward or upward stock moves in companies based on events that you historically didn't think would drive that type of short-term volatility. So being aware of those dynamics are things that we have incorporated in our research process. We think over the long term, it creates opportunity. It's just, you have to survive that path along the way. I'd love to hear an example of that dynamic in one of the stocks that maybe you bought or owned in the portfolio. A recent example is Adyen in our global growth strategy. Adyen is a leading global online merchant acquiring platform. Essentially, with a single API, it can allow companies to accept all sorts of different payment types, including places like Europe, parts of the emerging markets, the US developed markets with a single line of code. And then one of the things that they've done is created an offline merchant acquiring business that allows companies to have a single view online and offline of their customer base. And they've created a back-end tech infrastructure where we think that they have a cost advantage versus the vast majority of their competitors. And it's a business that was very fast growing. In 2022, despite it being highly free cash flow generative and having strong operating margins, when we saw that growth to value violent rotation with a sharp increase in inflation and interest rates, one of the big things that we saw was that the fastest growing businesses, which have a disproportionate amount of their values accrued into the compounding of growth in the out years when you're doing that traditional DCF calculation, saw the biggest valuation pullbacks in 2022. And then one of the things that happened in 2023 is that when they reported there were some incremental concerns around competition in the U.S. market. Competitors like J.P. Morgan Chase or PayPal's Braintree or Stripe. And we'd always viewed the U.S. market as more of a commodity-oriented market within that larger payment ecosystem anyways. You have a single currency. That's very different than the complexity of payments in Europe, for example, where you have far more cross-border transactions. You have a lot of different currencies a wide variety of different countries, longer tail payment types. That's really the type of bread and butter environment where Adyen is able to solve issues for its clients and get a meaningful revenue generation 
essentially what happened was is that they had this intermediate term guidance of low to mid 20s revenue growth and because their near term growth was slowing down below that and now the market was anticipating that they'd only be able to achieve high teens revenue growth which is still very strong in an absolute sense the stock was down 50% on earnings because of how skittish the market was the market was just punishing companies that were missing expectations even if it wasn't by large variances so that was a great example where we really leaned into our conviction the analyst did a fantastic job of going through the thought process has anything changed here do we continue to have very strong conviction relative to our original investment case do we think that that competitive intensity is going to expand beyond the US to Europe and and other geographies or do we think it's more isolated and contained to the US and when we kind of went through that entire thought process we realized that we had as much conviction in Adian as we did before and decided to bring the weight back up to a large bucket weight and essentially double the weight size and take advantage of the market significantly overreacting and it appears that we're sort of off to the races again with Adian so hopefully that gives you sort of an example of some of the dynamics that we're seeing in the market what are some of the biggest challenges you see in the business and in performing going forward? Well, one of the biggest challenges that we're obviously getting a lot of client questions and we're thinking a lot about internally relates to the concentration of the value creation that's happening in the Russell 1000 growth related to the Magnificent Seven. So it's been a very, very narrow market over the last number of years now, really. And our sort of response to that is we don't look at the Magnificent Seven as just one group of businesses. We think each one is very different. If you were to take something like Apple over the last five years, a big driver of Apple's growth has actually been valuation-driven rather than earnings-driven. But then if you take something like Microsoft, for example, it's seen some multiple expansion, but the predominant driver of the exceptional stock price in Microsoft for the last five years has been earnings. And we think that's a much more sort of sustainable driver long-term. So we just go company by company and develop our thesis. And at the firm-wide level, we own five of the seven across our various different portfolios. But two of them, in this case, Apple and Tesla, are companies that we have not embraced. And we still very much have high active share across our strategies. And we have a collection of businesses that we think are going to definitely be able to meaningfully add value when we're looking out over the next five years. But that hurdle rate in terms of the fact that the Russell 1000 growth has been in the, call it the top 10, 15th percentile of active management for US growth investors, it's been a high hurdle to beat. So Tesla is like a notorious battleground stock. (laughs) <laughs> mentioned not in your portfolio. I'd love to just through your lens of your six criteria, walk through why you don't own Tesla. I own two Teslas. So I drive one and my wife drives one. It's a fantastic product, but all great products don't necessarily translate to great businesses. Going back to our six criteria, the first five criteria help us decide, is this a high quality sans capital like business? And then the six criteria helps us decide if we can actually make money in the stock long term. And so you need all of those things to line up. 
at this valuation, we think that you need much more than just car volumes, time, price, equal revenue and earnings. You have to bake in a lot more for many of the adjacencies, including its autonomous fleet. And depending on where you are on those expectations, the size that things like the autonomous fleet, the energy storage business, their budding insurance business, all these other areas that they've been expanding into and growing, the amount of value that you have to ascribe to those to kind of make the math work for us, we've been hesitant. We also think that we're probably in a pretty difficult digestion phase for EVs, overall electric vehicle volumes in probably the next 12, 18 months, given the late impact of higher interest rates and the wealth effect that that has on consumers and in their purchasing power. Right now, we're at a point where EVs are still more expensive than ICE and cars. And at those higher interest rates, we think those are headwinds to adoption over the short and intermediate term. The final thing that I'd say is before 2019, 2020, financial strength was one of our biggest concerns because that criteria doesn't prevent us from embracing unprofitable businesses per se, but we want the company to be able to finance itself from its own balance sheet or cash flow. So for example, Amazon's an unprofitable business that we invested in very early on. And one of the reasons for that is because despite it being unprofitable, it actually had a phenomenal working capital cycle. Customers would pay up front, they'd pay suppliers 90 plus days later. They were able to self-finance their growth. And it's one of the reasons why you didn't see Amazon coming to the market serially to raise additional equity capital throughout those years. Whereas Tesla pre-2020 was a completely different story. They were unprofitable and had a challenging working capital cycle. And it's one of the reasons why Elon Musk, in my view, had such big public targets for the business was because he had to sell the dream because he was relying on raising equity capital to finance the dream. Now, that all changed. Either great timing, luck, those two things often go hand in hand. But in February 2020, right before the pandemic, they did the final raise. I think it was a couple billion dollars. And that was the last capital they needed to flip to free cash flow positive. And that's when you saw a big amount of wealth creation in a short amount of time in the stock. But since then, our main challenge has been around valuation. I'd love to ask you, Brian, what are some lessons that you've learned from CEOs of your portfolio companies? That's a very interesting question. There's a couple things. One is around talent management. And the reality is, is that some of our most impressive management teams, interestingly, in charge of some of the biggest wealth creation opportunities that we've seen are entrepreneurial or family run. If you go throughout history, Amazon with Jeff Bezos is a great example, or Walgreens, that was entrepreneurial and family run, or Walmart is also a fantastic example of that, or many of the tech platforms, for example, Google. I'm also a portfolio manager on our emerging market strategy. And when you think about the amount of wealth that's been created by the Tata family across a whole number of different companies, one of which we own, which is Titan, the leading gold drawer franchise in India, or Asian Paints, which is a lot like the Sherwin-Williams in decorative paints in India. They have over 50% market share 
in a very underpenetrated market. Dr. Reddy with Apollo Hospitals in India, they run not only the largest for-profit hospital system in India, but also the largest retail pharmacy company in India. Dr. Reddy was inspired by the Frist family who had built HCA here in the U.S. So these entrepreneurial family-run businesses, some of the biggest lessons that we've learned from them, and I think also comes naturally given that Sands Capital is an entrepreneurially built business, employee-owned with Frank Sands and the Sands family still very much in control of the business. And as our CEO and CIO is very active in building the business over the long term, our best managed publicly traded businesses are ones that are able to maintain that long-term lens, are able to invest heavily in their people, in R&D, in innovation for the long-term, are able to attract some of the best talent that's available in the marketplace. They also do a fantastic balance between growth and experimentation in either new geographies, new areas, new products, and new services, but they stay very disciplined in capital allocation or some sort of framework that determines how much time, energy, resources do they spend on their current business versus those new adjacencies. And often what they do is something like Nubank, for example, which is a business and a management team that we admire, building one of the most attractive digital banks not just in Brazil, where it's a leader, but really when you're stack ranking it up globally. And they have a very disciplined framework for how they think about capital allocation to new adjacencies. And they're taking their current foothold in Brazil and actually expanding into new markets like Mexico and Colombia, but they're doing it in a very rational sort of disciplined way. So I'd say it's a lot of little things as well. I mean, I find myself constantly sort of in a long running list in my Evernote, keeping nice little management tidbits from all the different management teams that we're meeting across the world. Brian, I don't want to let you go without asking a couple of closing questions. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? Yeah, so I'm definitely into fitness. Given the demands that are on an investment professional, in today's environment where there's information coming at you at all times, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, having an activity that allows you to stay physically fit and just sort of escape a bit from all the noise, I think is helpful. And, and working out is definitely one of those for me. Similarly, I absolutely love reading. I mean, one of my favorite activities is just to have a cocktail in my hand, sitting on the beach, where the nature is just incredibly powerful, the sight of it, the sound of it, the smell of it, and then with a really good book in my hand. I mean, there's nothing better on earth than that in my mind. What's one fact that most people don't know about you? I grew up in a very international environment, I guess I'd say. So my wife actually originally grew up in Russia. My mom was actually born in Cuba, left Cuba when she was 11 years old back in the 60s. My brother was actually born on the naval base in Naples, Italy. 
We lived on the naval base in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, when I was a kid at one point. So this idea of the world just being a much bigger place than my immediate surroundings, I mean, that concept was pretty ingrained in me at a young age. And I think all that moving around and having all of that different cultural exposure made my personality pretty adaptable and flexible in a lot of different team environments, in part just because that was the only way to survive when you were moving every two and a half years and plopped into a different school and a different neighborhood. And I think a lot of that is probably one of the things that attracted me to investing in emerging markets and global investing as well is just sort of being able to continue to find a way to pique that interest by meeting people and traveling all around the world. What's your biggest pet peeve? <laughs> Probably people that have too strong of opinions on too many things. And the reason for that is it starts making me nervous about someone's judgment and then being susceptible to an overconfidence bias. I'm a big fan of Phil Tetlock and his work on super forecasters. One of the things that's really interesting is as a growth investor, where you're trying to predict the future and you have these concentrated conviction-weighted portfolios, these opportunities are nonlinear. So the reality is, is you have to have courage to be an investor and you have to have courage to be different. And when you have courage to be different, that means a lot of people are going to disagree with your viewpoint at times. But you also have to be willing to sort of update your views based on new pieces of information. And I think sometimes overconfidence biases prevent people from being able to do that effectively and just sort of look at rational data when new data is coming in. I just feel like if you have really strong opinions on too many things, the chances of you being able to rationally update your thinking on things is probably pretty low. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? Well, one of them is definitely Frank Sand Sr. He was just definitely one of those people who he was just very thoughtful and articulate in how he communicated. He also used silence strategically in order to emphasize a point. Words really, really mattered to him. That's something that I've picked up from him and it sort of rubbed off on me. It was really important to him, for example, if he heard someone say investment products at Sands, he would just get so frustrated very professionally, but he would be one of the first to correct you that we offer investment strategies. We do not sell investment products. By the time I met him in 2006, he'd already had a very enviable investment track record. He started Sands Capital when he was 50 years old. So talking about taking risk. And he had three kids and was willing to go start on his own. Incredible track record, great human being. I just feel privileged to have had the opportunity to be mentored by him. And despite all that professional success and personal and financial success that he'd had, he was just so down to earth to talk to, which I think is very, very rare. How about a second one? I would definitely go with my wife. I still remember maybe 10 years into this business thinking, man, having a supportive partner or spouse it is a huge, incredible force multiplier for anyone's career. And she also works full-time. We have three girls, 10, 7, and 3, two big dogs. It's a pretty busy Christensen household, particularly 
given how much I'm on the road for research travel. And so I admire her energy, her devotion to our family, her investment in each one of our successes, her sense of humor. And honestly, it would just be hard for me to imagine being able to do what I do, be successful doing what I do without her, like hands down, without a doubt. So she would definitely be the second. What's the best advice you've ever received? Two things. One is someone told me, if you can avoid it, try not to enter a career which is relying on billable hours for revenue generation because it just means in order to make more, you automatically have to work more. Ideally, if you can find a role where you're paid based on your judgment and that value creation that's delinked from hours worked, you can have a better quality of life. Another one that was partially related to the investment context, there was a Yale alum when I was doing coffee chat interviews, and he shared with me that most students, they'd either tend to flock to startups or really large, established brand name corporations that they felt like would be great stepping stones just for their resumes. He actually felt like there was just this enormously attractive sweet spot with smaller well-established, fast-growing, boutique-style businesses, ones that are not startups in the sense that they're large enough where they have an established track record, value proposition, you know that they can pay the bills, they can certainly invest in their people, but it's still small enough where you're fast-growing and you can make an impact on the P&L of the firm even as a young person. And if you're able to do that as a young professional, you're often given more opportunities for career development to take on stretch roles than you would in a much more larger established firm. And it's interesting. I feel like that's in part been the hallmark of my experience at Sands. Brian, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? One of my strengths has always been grit. Put your head down and work really hard at something. And I think that's a powerful thing, and I wouldn't want to give that up. But the flip side is what I've also learned is how helpful and powerful relationships can be in a professional setting and spending enough time to work on those relationships. You can combine the really hard work and grit, but with strong relationships, it's an incredible, powerful combination. Brian, thanks so much for sharing this story of your path at Sands. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Ted. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this Sponsored Insight. Sponsored episodes are paid opportunities for another 12 managers a year to appear on the podcast. If you're interested in telling your story in front of the largest audience of investors in the industry, please email us at team at capitalallocators.com to apply for one of the slots.